San Diego talking softball. And Michigan, one out away. Heading back to Oklahoma City. Danny Ritter looking for that final pitch here in 2005 at Alumni Field and what has so far been the greatest season in Michigan softball history. Now the 0-2 pitch, swinging a ground ball to the right side. Haas has it, goes to first in time, and the ball game is over. And for the eighth time in the last 11 years, the University of Michigan is going back to Oklahoma City to make their eighth appearance in the Women's College World Series. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Just Getting Comfortable and Into My Seat edition of Gray Matters, your weekly media analysis current affairs program. My name is Jim Dwyer. And I'm Dick Whaley, digging up my Pinochet file. A big debate whether it's Pinochet or Pinochet. Sort of an interesting irony that uh, within days of Gene Kirkpatrick passing away... <laughs> From congestive heart failure, you're uh, apparently Augusto Pinochet. Well, or, she needs somebody to play canasta with. Well, yeah, they probably deserve each other in uh, limbo. <laughs> uh, that's a little Catholic joke there. It's been in the news the last couple of years. There's a big debate in the Vatican about whether limbo exists. Well, I think the official word is that they have discontinued limbo and that all the souls stuck there for the, uh, the centuries have basically been given clearance to. That's to right. Once they realized it was a dance craze here in the United States, they changed their tune. But yes. Tom, Gene Kirkpatrick had one of the deepest voices of all time. <laughs> Gene and Jane Curtin. Um, she, of course, uh, garnered fame as the uh, UN ambassador uh, during the first part of the Reagan administration. And it was interesting to hear her lionized uh, by the mainstream media over uh, the weekend that she contributed to the demise of the Soviet Union and all that gibberish. Um, I, obviously, she was sort of an interesting person, and her famous uh, article entitled Dictatorships and Double Standards that w was published in the November edition of Commentary apparently was read by Richard Allen, who brought it to the attention of Mr. Reagan, and uh, it was interesting to... Uh, here in her reading her obituary how she had the ear of the president as opposed to some other officials but her article dictatorships and double standards quote and i'm quoting from the official obituary in the new york times here quote drew a bright line between right-wing pro-american governments and left-wing anti-american ones Traditional authoritarian governments, she argued, are less repressive than revolutionary autocracies. Well, that's a matter of debate. Um, and certainly Ch Chile was a classic example of a Indeed. American-backed dictatorship 
Uh, one of the reasons that I brought uh, the Pinochet file in, this is a uh, National Security Archive book by Peter Cornblue, is it details uh, America's involvement in the overthrow of Allende and how the so-called Committee of Forty, headed by Henry Kissinger, were promptly um, launched into action uh, in the fall of 1970 when it became apparent that uh, Allende would be the elected uh, president of Chile uh, in the uh, elections that happened that year. He got something like 37% of the vote. And worth noting, Allende was not a communist. He was a socialist. There were communists uh, amongst his cabinet. But uh, Henry Kissinger's great observation, one of the all-time most embarrassing quotes in American history, uttered by Kissinger. Which we'll give him a brain damage award for. I don't see why we need to stand idly by and watch a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its own people. Yeah. I mean, that speaks volumes about a total lack of respect for the very concept of democracy. And indeed, and one of the interesting things about these uh, immediate meetings that occurred, uh, and these are detailed in... By the way, these you know the Pinochet file is a is a book that's part uh, analysis and part uh, copied uh, declassified memos. But importantly, of course, a lot of the memos are seriously blacked out, uh, particularly during the Reagan years. By the way, uh, the Clinton administration um, dragged its feet a little bit. the The whole sort of uh, chronology of how this uh, really happened is interesting in and of itself. Allende was, uh, I mean, not, not Allende, Pinochet was uh, Pinochet. I'm going to call him Pinochet. I think that's the uh, Spanish uh, pronunciation as opposed to the French. There's a debate about the pronunciation because of his uh, heritage. Uh, Pinochet um, was basically put under house arrest in London mm-hmm. uh, in the late 90s, as I recall, after he... Uh, left power, and uh, he was basically indicted in a Spanish court for murdering uh, Spanish uh, civilians. And what's interesting is how, uh, in the declassification of these documents, they redacted a lot of the uh, issues and phrases involving the phrase terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, because, of course, this was one of the tactics that uh, Pinochet uh, used uh, in his repression. And uh, the talking points for the Committee of Forty in uh, the fall of 1970 to undermine Allende are are fascinating because they basically called for economic warfare, social and political warfare, and um, psychological warfare, and that this would be a classic psych ops operation uh, employed by the American government, uh, and that the CIA was heavily involved in this. And, the, of course, Henry Kissinger was the chair of the Committee of Forty. And this, of course, included people like Richard Helms, David Atlee Phillips, uh, who I've been reading uh, more about in recent uh, books that have been published about the Kennedy assassination. He was the so-called uh, head of Western Hemispheres in the CIA that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, supposedly met in Dallas after his mysterious trip to uh, Mexico City in 1963. Um, but it's interesting, 
how um, this group called for the specific tactics of uh, economic warfare, which, of course, the, the goal was to do anything they could to discredit Allende uh, in the eyes of the people and well, to create chaos. Including this, uh, three years' worth of CIA-backed terror groups who bombed and destroyed railroads, power plants, key highway arteries— to create chaos and stop the country from functioning, the goal was, quote, to make the country, excuse me, to make the economy scream as Nixon ordered. And that's probably Nixon's actual language. Yeah. And ITT, of course, uh, was uh, heavily involved in the uh, efforts to destabilize the country for its own economic uh, reasons. Yeah, and one of the interesting uh, redacted, edited uh, articles or, or documents from the National Security Archive that they obtained under the Freedom of Information under economic warfare shows uh, everything blacked out except Chilean, and then there's a paragraph that's completely redacted, but obviously this, you can read into it as uh, Multinational corporations will do things to create shortages, create uh, the economic hardships on the Chilean people in which they will blame Allende for the problems. Of course, the coup itself didn't occur until uh, September 11th of 1973. And it's interesting, and I'm just going to read a paragraph here because this is a fascinating uh, coincidence as well. Uh, Peter Cornblue writes on September 10th, 2001, <laughs> one day before 9-11. More than three decades after the murder of Chilean General Rene Schneider, two of his sons filed a comprehensive wrongful death lawsuit against Henry Kissinger and former CIA Director Richard Helms. The civil complaint, drawn extensively on declassified U.S. documentation, presented a detailed summary of Track 2, including the White House decisions and covert operations that led uh, to what court papers called General Schneider's summary execution, torture, cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment, arbitrary detention, assault and battery, negligence, and intentional infliction of emotional distress and wrongful death. Kissinger and Helms's activities, quote, included the organization and instigation of a military coup d'etat in Chile, that required the removal of General Rene Schneider, father of the, uh, of the plaintiffs, Rene and Raoul Schneider, according to the filing. Each of the defendants' deliberate and designed actions were such that the defendants knew or should have known that their acts and omissions would result in the death of General Schneider. And he was particularly identified uh, by the Committee of Forty in the 1970s, in the fall of 1970, as someone that would have to be removed from the Chilean military to allow uh, Pinochet to advance. So it's classic uh, examples of American, uh, what was Jean Kirkpatrick's uh, phrase there? Double standards. <laughs> um and, of course, she's the one that brought up this uh, phrase, the blame America first crowd. Mm -hmm. uh, she used that in the obituary, specifically mentions uh, in deriding the Democrats in the 1984 uh, convention that uh, they, they were the blame America first party. Well, I, I don't know about that. Um, but what I do know is that uh, if we were 
say you and I were characterized, Jim, <laughs> and I'm talking like Gene Kirkpatrick here, as uh, blame America first, we're, we're, we're doing no such thing. We're pointing out uh, inherent uh, problems with American foreign policy that contradict um, the idealistic aspects of American uh, constitutional law and government and how we think people should behave. We don't think that there is a difference at the end of the day between right-wing pro-American uh, governments and uh, so-called left-wing anti-American governments. Um, we think that uh, murder is uh, murder. Yeah. And, of course, the Chilean uh, bombing, I believe it was in 1975 in Washington. Washington, D.C. By fact, Dina. And, yeah, and, in the diplomatic uh, neighborhood there. Uh Orlando Letelier and Ronnie Muffet uh, killed in a, with a car bomb there in the heart of D.C. That was the, until 9-11, the worst uh, example of uh, foreign-backed terrorism on American soil. Of course, those responsible for the car bomb were eventually arrested, tried, and jailed, but... Given very light sentences. Light sentences, and none of the leadership uh, were pursued. And, of course, Pinochet, when he retired, uh, declared himself senator for life which allowed him this so-called diplomatic yeah. immunity that uh, he sought in trying to prevent uh, international law from uh, working. And needless to say, unfortunately, the American government and its various uh, successor governments following Richard Nixon in general backed up uh, the principle of, of allowing Pinochet some form of immunity. Uh, Bill Clinton maybe was the lone exception. Of course, it took him several years to become converted, but he became persuaded uh, regarding the terrorism issue that it would be uh, a double standard to um, not pursue justice in this particular case, <clears throat> i.e. the bombing of, uh, of uh, the, the Letelier bombing in Washington, right. D.C., well, and, you know, it's inescapable. It's uh, a lot of times these uh, neocon right-wingers, and to be fair, people on the left want to play semantic footsie, too. But uh, there it is in front page of the New York Times. Uh, Augusto Pinochet, dictator who ruled by terror, dies. You know, to uh, quote uh, Premier Kissoff in uh, Dr. Strangelove, our source was the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm sure that uh, Ruled by Terror was not a headline uh, that appeared in the uh, Wall Street Journal or the Washington Times. Indeed, but... Uh, Instead, they try to extol the virtues that Pinochet somehow brought... Economic reforms. Yeah, to the, Amer to the Chilean people because he was so much better than Allende. But what that conveniently ignores uh, in talking about the uh, economic problems that Allende experienced uh, during those roughly three years that he was president, were the systematic undermining of the economy by American and Chilean multinational corporations that were undermining his uh, marginal uh, popularity. Because what was important about Chile, by the way, was that it essentially had a three-party system. Right. And this is one of the reasons that three-party systems sometimes have uh, difficulty um, ruling as, 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 you know, governing as a government uh, when you win elections with 36.8% of the of the vote, as Allende did, uh, you know, you're essentially dealing with the fact that uh, almost 
five-eighths of the people didn't vote for you. So there's something uh, inherently uh, problematic with that. But uh, I, I don't know if uh, Jean Kirkpatrick uh, will uh, find herself, uh, <laughs> to, to, to uh, quote uh, uh, Maureen Dowd here, um, in talking about uh, um, Laura Bush <laughs> and the uh, the dress controversy involving uh, the, the the Renta dress at the Christmas party, <laughs> where she sarcastically uh, uh, approaches Bushy and uh, in a soft voice uh, asks, "Can we send Oscar D. La Loser to Gitmo?" <laughs> Because that would be the authoritarian uh, right-wing government that we uh, support, so to speak. Indeed. For a little torture session. Well, I like this quote from uh, the great poet Pablo Neruda, uh, who said this to uh, the fascist police as they searched his home after the uh, September 11th, 1973 coup. He said, look around. There's only one thing of danger for you here. Poetry. Um, the newspapers that are going to extol the uh, virtues of Pinochet's economic reforms raises the very simple, basic question, who does government serve? And, of course, government talks out of both sides of its mouth, usually, uh, on the one hand, uh, trying to placate, a, uh, in this case of our country, a fairly comfortable uh, public with sort of bland, uh, generic comments about the virtues of democracy and so forth. When you get a story like this uh, Chilean coup and all the corporate involvement, it's very clear that, sadly, all too often, our country's government and most countries' governments, uh, in fact, serve corporate interests, private interests, not the people. And so this is far from a blame America first crowd. It's let's look at the causes of the problems. Let's look at the roots and origins of the problems. Um, it's very superficial and ultimately uh, defeating to simply look for somebody to blame. Oftentimes the fault can be found uh, with our own missteps. And it's interesting in the uh, Pinochet file by Peter Cornblue, he relates a sort of a historical... Um, meeting that occurred between the editor of the Chilean version of El Mercurio. Uh, his name at the moment escapes me. I can check the book in a second for his actual name. But he met uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, in September of 1970 at the home of Donald Kendall, who at the time was chairman of Pepsi-Cola and one of Richard Nixon's biggest corporate backers. Indeed, Nixon worked for Pepsi for a while. Nixon met with... Uh, the editor of El Mercurio and Donald Kendall at this uh, residence where they pretty much hatched out the uh, incipient stages of the eventual coup d'etat. And, of course, the editor of Mercurio was uh, there to ostensibly provide negative press coverage of Allende. So this was part of the process of undermining uh, the so-called popular support that Allende had. Um, so this is just another a, a propinquity example, of the propinquity of media, corporations, and political power, this sort of strange troika of people um, openly, well, covertly, <laughs> discussing overthrowing the elected leader of Chile uh, because possibly America's corporate interests were at stake, including those of Pepsi-Cola. So... Uh, 
And by the way, I think it's uh, Pepsi Cola that Nixon brought to the Russians. That was part of detente. <laughs> right. <laughs> they gave us Stoli. We gave them Pepsi. He was worried about the fact that Coke was in China. Uh, so Donald Kendall <laughs> worked his magic uh, with Richard Nixon and Pepsi Coley. Prevailed. Yes. Well, one last quote from uh, Augusto Pinochet here. Something to think about. Democracy is the breeding ground of communism. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> That shows you what kind of a towering intellect the man had and uh, what sort of a philosophical uh, disaster it was to allow uh, such leaders to uh, enjoy the favor of uh, the United States government. Yeah, and uh, some other quick brain damage awards real uh, quickly here. Uh, first of all, you got to give the uh, government of Iran a brain damage award for hosting a Holocaust denial seminar or whatever where the featured speaker is David Duke. Uh, come on. Uh, this is uh, terrible public relations, and uh, Holocaust denial is... Uh, very strange indeed. and well, it's, it's one of the most intellectually bankrupt arguments that could be made. There's copious evidence, yeah. including survivors. Yeah, and it's it's bizarre the that, that there are actually Hasidic New York Jews at this conference uh, that apparently have some sort of revisionist theory about the founding of the state of Israel. Apparently it conflicts with some some scriptures Indeed, that they the, uh, adhere the to. The contention there is that uh, Israel can't exist until the Messiah comes. And so for it to be established before such a time as that has occurred uh, makes it an invalid concept. So for those Hasidic uh, Jews, that's their spin on that. Why they would be going to this conference, I don't know, but... Uh, yeah, the the president of Iran is a is a knucklehead. There's no yeah. uh, no and denying that. The timing is uh, absolutely abominable, given the fact that the Iraq study group, um, Frank Rich calls them the Sunshine Boys. Uh, <laughs> There's some old timers there. There are some old timers there, and we'll get to one of them in a second. Uh, it's mind boggling um, that Sandra Day O'Connor who was actually put on the commission as a sort of a last-second replacement for Robert Gates. You know, he, no, he had busy other, now. He had other duties. Well, she appeared on, uh, I believe it was uh, N- uh, the McNeil uh, hour, McNeil-Lair hour, um, the, the day after the report came out. And her claim, and, and they were talking here about uh, the recommendation that America talk to uh, Syria and Iran, one of the 79 proposals in the Iraq study group's uh, rather (laughs) bland uh, final report. She actually went on television and said, and get this, she said, oh, well, we talked to the Soviet Union during World War II because they were our enemy. And I thought to myself, eh, um, The Soviet Union was not our enemy in World War II. They were on our side. We were talking to Stalin during World War II, not because he was our enemy, but because Churchill and Roosevelt were interested in discussing war plans and post-war plans. Um, 
So Sandra Day O'Connor needs another dose of Geritol. <laughs> well, I'm not really sure what her area... I mean, obviously she's a legal expert, but what's her background in diplomacy, foreign affairs, Middle Eastern politics? Well, she reportedly asked the best questions, according to... Somebody that sat in on the sessions. Oh, dear. <laughs> Doesn't bode well. Uh, her experience in asking questions from the Supreme Court yeah, okay, is apparently that, yeah. She has some legislative experience. But, yeah, this uh, hodgepodge of... Oh, most of them, ironically, are, are Reagan corpses uh, and or corpses from Bush's father's administration with a few uh, Clintonistas in there. But Chuck Robb, I mean... How totally appropriate that he's on this commission. <laughs> Let's remember that Chuck Robb is the son-in-law of LBJ. <laughs> he married Linda Bird. That is, there's something interestingly ironic about that. And he, of course, was always considered one of the biggest lightweights in the, in the Senate when he was there. He's a likable fellow. And I'll give him credit for being the only member of the Iraq study group to actually venture out of the green zone uh, in their whopping four days of meetings in Iraq. Um, but, you know, this, uh, this commission, this study group is, uh, what can you say about it? Uh, except a, a BBC uh, <laughs> critic said that it was uh, like an elephant giving birth to a mouse. <laughs> and well, the imagery of that was uh, profound. That's pretty apt, because really there's nothing in the report that hasn't already been offered or suggested or even anticipated before the war began. Yeah, and some of it, like, let's stay until 2008 and beef up our... Well, let's look at our clocks here, people. 2008's getting closer. <laughs> beef up our, our training. Uh, you know, I mean, what more needs to be said? Of course, uh, Bush... Took you know his approach to the report as as lame as it was was uh, outright rejection. It was yep. basically petulance, truculence, and hey, we're winning in Iraq. <laughs> okay, more from the master of the smirk, the decider. Yeah, decides yet again. A new troubling um, study, and I'll just mention this really quickly because I think this underscores. Uh, part of the problems that we have in the world today. A UN economics research um, World Institute development report, and I sort of botched the <laughs> title of this group, uh, reports that the top 1% of the world's population, some 37 million adults, with a net worth of at least uh, $515,000, accounted for 40% of the wealth of the world, the bottom half of the population owned a mere 1.1% of global wealth. They go on to note that uh, the United States accounted for 4.7% of the world's population, but 32.6% of the world's wealth, nearly 4 out of 10 people in the wealthiest 1% of the global population were in America. The average American had a net worth of nearly 144000 losing only to Japan, Luxembourg and the Swiss. We seem to be slipping. We used to be number one. Now we're number four. And it then goes on to note, amongst Americans, wealth is distributed about as unequally as it is around the globe. The study cited data from the Federal Research Survey of Consumer Finances, 
which found that the richest 1% of Americans held 32% of the nation's wealth in 2001. This list excludes the billionaires in the Forbes list who control another 2%. So uh, exclude the list and skew the averages and keep roasting those chestnuts around the open fire. Uh, meanwhile, the rest of us uh, slog uh, from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, well, here's some more kind of bleak news uh, that uh, implies uh, a little economic slippage. It's front page story in the Financial Times today. Oil producers shun the dollar. Oil producing countries have reduced their exposure to the dollar to the lowest level in two years and shifted oil income into euros, yen, and British sterling, according to new data from the Bank for International Settlements. Uh, they increased uh, their holdings of euros from 20 to 22 percent. The speed of the shift may help to explain the weakness of the dollar, which recently fell to a 20-month low against the euro and a 14-year low against sterling. The last time oil exporting countries cut their exposure to the dollar in late 2003, it pushed the euro to an all-time high against the dollar. 18 months ago, the exposure to the dollar of oil-producing countries was above 70 percent. Long story short, this is ultimately going to translate into higher gas prices, uh, among other things. Most likely, and of course it's also a function of the structural trade deficit that the United States uh, continues to experience. Another story related to this is that OPEC prepares to put the squeeze on world stockpiles. For two, year, uh, two years ago, Saudi Arabia, the world's biggest oil exporter, opened its spigots and let supply outpace demand. The result was a gradual buildup in oil inventories in the U.S., Europe, and several Asian oil-consuming countries. Uh, however, at a meeting this month, the country's influential oil minister has uh, appeared to abruptly reverse that accommodating policy. Uh, Ali Naimi says inventories in the U.S. are high, not low. That's why the market is out of balance. He added that a hundred million barrels of oil should be cut to rebalance it. So we've got a trend away from the dollar in the international purchase and selling of oil and a cutback in the production, which has led to, I think, it, part of what led to the recent little dip in uh, gasoline prices. So I think these two factors, uh, we're going to see gas go up again in the now that we're officially into the heating season, although obviously it's a little warm here in Ann Arbor today. Yeah, and, and I think there was an interesting correlation with the uh, midterm elections regarding oil prices oh, as sure. well. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things, by the way, um, maybe the only useful thing that the Iraq study group actually came up with was Proposition 72, uh, cost for the war should be part of the annual budget, not emergency supplemental funds. Because they talked uh, specifically about how that obscures the actual costs and is uh, rife for uh, all sorts of hanky-panky regarding the actual um, expenditures that are occurring in Iraq, which, by the way, are about $2 billion a week. Uh, and we spend about twice as much in Iraq annually as uh, the entire GNP of Iraq. So it would be cheaper if we simply gave Iraq $50 billion a year and withdrew. That won't be in part of Bush's uh, new way forward. And uh, Frank, New way forward. That's a great phrase. And Frank Rich uh, uh, makes the <laughs> amazing observation, and this is just so uh, locally appropriate that we bring this to your attention. 
He said he writes there was a feel good title to the way forward, unfortunately chosen by the Ford Motor Company <laughs> to promote its last ditch plan to stave off bankruptcy. How appropriate. Yeah, the new way forward. 